Turn with me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the last, the concluding verses of the book of Amos, verses 9 or 11 through 15. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. We do pray that, even as we just sung here, that you would speak here to us through your word. Um, We trust the sufficiency of Scripture and trust that you have given to us your word that is enough for our needs. And so we pray that as we read and look at the passage in front of us, that you would encourage us, encourage us particularly today by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we cross the finish line in the book of Amos, almost cross the finish line. As I traditionally do, I have an introductory message to a book of the Bible, uh, and then I have a conclusion message to a book in the Bible, and Lord willing, that's what I plan to do is kind of have one more message that would kind of just take all of the loose strings and just kind of tie them together. Uh, But today is the um, last several or the last verses of the book of Amos. And uh, today's passage is a passage of hope that comes at the conclusion of a long series of indictments and judgments leveled against Israel. One might summarize today's passage with the word, finally. (laughs) Or one could summarize today's passage with a verse from Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, we have um, by this prophet one of, I think, the most uh, memorable statements in all of the prophets. And that is a very simple phrase, uh, but Habakkuk says in chapter 3 and verse 2, he simply says, in wrath, remember mercy. And that is what we have in front of us. We have in the book of Amos, the Lord in wrath, remembering his mercy. And we desperately need this. Like uh, a parched tongue in a dry desert needs water. Or a sick child needs life-saving medicine, so too guilty sinners need gospel grace. And that is what we see in our passage in front of us. And this is, as we are going to read in a minute here, these verses uh, that conclude Amos, it may be admittedly uh, difficult for us to grasp this strange new language in Amos. After all, We've become quite accustomed over the last several weeks to statements in Amos like this. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Or this, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Or this, I hate, I despise your feasts. Or this, I will deliver up the city and all That is in it. Or this, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. Or this, so many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. 
we are going to see a transition in the passage today, one that is a rather abrupt trans- transition. And there is a theme, uh, what I'm going to say, kind of a sub-theme uh, in the undercurrent of Amos that I have been emphasizing uh, from week to week, and that is this. If your theology does not have room for the whole counsel of God, something is amiss. Some people may listen to a sermon preached, and they may say something like this. He talked about obedience too much. He talked about obedience too little. He talked about Christ too much. He talked about Christ too little. He talked about grace too much. He talked about grace too little. He talked about wrath too much. He talked about wrath too little. He talked about sovereignty too much. He talked about sovereignty too little. Do you want to know what matters? What does the text say? What does the text say? We open up our Bibles to this particular passage, and the question is, what does the Bible say? Not as what, what is my opinion of it, not what kind of mood am I in, and I can use this to heighten the mood in some What does the Bible say? And if that is what the text says, then your problem lies with the Bible, not with the messenger. Some people need to understand that the Bible talks about more than just one thing. Your pet doctrine is not the only thing the Bible discusses. The Bible discusses a lot of things. I remember seeing uh, one time a Joel Osteen interview, and uh, he was asked, why don't you ever talk about sin? Why, why do you... Um, and I remember that he answered that question and said, I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, uh, well, I just view myself as an encourager, and I just want to focus on the positive passages in the Bible. Now, there's a problem with this, okay? We all should know the problem with this. Uh, now, let's, let's assume... I don't think Osteen faithfully portrays the quote-unquote positive parts of Scripture. But let's suppose for a minute you could do that. Let's suppose for a minute that you could faithfully portray the positive, quote-unquote, whatever you think those are, the positive portions of Scripture, and just neglect all of the rest in the Bible. Let's say you could do that, and you could do that faithfully. I don't think that you can, but let's just say that you could for the sake of the argument. What would that be like? It would be like a math teacher who taught addition but not subtraction. It would be like a history teacher who taught the victories of World War II without its losses. It would be like a doctor who could give you vitamins but could not give you cold medicine. It would be like a gardener who knew how to put down fertilizer but not how to prevent insects. It would be like a mechanic who knew how to put gas in your car but not how to replace your alternator. It would be like a father who gave his children candy but not correction. We want to be whole Bible Christians. And there has to be room in your theology for the entirety of Scripture, or something is terribly amiss. To do anything else 
but to faithfully represent the word of God is to misrepresent the character of God and it is to misrepresent scripture itself. And we get a skewed view of God when we pick and choose which portions we're going to look at. Imagine the church that exists that chooses to only focus on the quote-unquote positive portions of Scripture. What, what, is that, what does that congregation look like 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road? They have a very skewed view of who their God is. They have a lopsided, topsy-turvy view of the Lord. In Scripture, what we learn is that God himself knows when to pick the sword up and when to put the sword down. Our God knows when to go into battle, and he knows when to hang up the bow. And those who only know God when he hangs up the bow only know him in part and are not acquainted with the full picture of the biblical God. And of course, nor does dismissing the Old Testament solve this problem. One might reason, perhaps maybe we could just discard or as some people might say, unhitch the Old Testament. We can divorce this portion of Scripture. But this does not solve the problem because the same Jesus Christ who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that same Jesus Christ says this, the Son of Man will throw all lawbreakers into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the same Jesus Christ. Likewise, the same New Testament that says, there is, no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That same New Testament also says, the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Same New Testament. And there is something that we have to understand. And coming to the end of the book of Amos gives us the full picture. This book... The book of Amos presents to us a picture of our God. And we see in the book of Amos a God who has depth and character. A God knows when to pick up the bow, when to put the bow down, when to pick up the sword, when to put the sword down. The God of Amos is not a God on a leash. He's certainly not a God on your leash. That you can direct where you want him to go, when you want him to go. No, he is a God in control of all things, and we will bow before him. Let's read Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruits. 
I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them. Thus says the Lord, your God. And of course, thus concludes the book of Amos. The first verse of today's passage stands in stark contrast with the previous one. I want you to look at, in your Bible, verse 10, Amos 9 and verse 10. And then I want you to look at verse 11. In verse 10, you have this. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And then look at immediately the next statement in verse 11. Where we read, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. This, of course, is a very sharp contrast. You have in the one statement in verse 10, all the sinners of my people are going to die. And then in the next, very next sentence, in that day I will raise up the booth of David. Wow, the stark contrast. It reminds one of the same stark contrast that exists in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2. And I have kind of uh, put together uh, a longer passage, verses 3 to 5, in a shorter statement here. But Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 says, You were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. And can you think of starker contrasts? You have an Amos, verse 10, and then verse 11, and then you have Ephesians here in chapter 2, and you have this stark contrast between God, who is talking about wrath and judgment and fury, and then suddenly, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. One reads these passages and one struggles to comprehend the depth of the divine love that is available in the gospel. Because verse 10 of Amos 9 tells us what we deserve. And the gospel tells us what we get. Divine love right there. That's gospel grace. Just consider if we were to go down a little bit further in the Ephesians text in verse 19 of chapter 2, we read this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There was a day when you were in the battle against God. You were in the fray. We were, all of us, charging the gates of God's kingdom with our fellow sinners, we fists in the air, swords in hand. We were prepared to do battle with the Lord himself as we were his enemies. Every one of us. We were among the ranks and running side by side against the Lord with blasphemers, adulterers, thieves, drunks, homosexuals, idolaters, greedy, proud, liars, and sexually immoral. And the Lord picked out from among that group people that he would give sovereign grace to, people that he would bring into his fellowship, people that he would bring into the kingdom as his own children. You see, Amos chapter 1 and verse 1 through Amos chapter 9 in verse 10 
is not what should surprise us. When we read these nine and a half chapters in Amos, sometimes we walk away with surprise. God could do that. That's not the surprising part of Amos. The surprising part of Amos is Amos 9, 11 to 15. Knowing the depth of human depravity, knowing how much we were assaulting God's kingdom and at our fists in his face and said, I do want to be away with you, God. Knowing how much we hated the Lord, we hated his laws, we hated everything about him. The surprise is that he picks from among those children that he would call by his own name. That's the surprising part. We spent several weeks working through several passages in Amos that have been hard, that have been direct, and that have been downright uh, uh, panic-inducing. What am I supposed to do with all these passages? We've seen some harsh statements in Amos revealing a character trait of God that we would rather forget. But it's there, and it's true, and it's part and parcel of who our God is. This should not surprise us. What should surprise us is Amos 9, 11 to 15. One wonders how this could even be part of the same book. <laughs> in fact, ironically enough, there are commentators who say this is not part of the same book. <laughs> there are some commentators who, uh, who suggest that the ending of Amos was written not by Amos, but by a later editor. Um, But what these commentators who uh, suggest this miss is the fact that this is God's pattern all throughout Scripture. Look at the prophets. This is the pattern again and again and again. Long segments of God's wrath and judgment and indictment, and then this sudden sharp contrast to, but there's hope. This is all over Scripture. This is not the result of some later editor but it is a result of something that comes directly from the mind of God himself. God gives to us the seriousness of disobeying his word and his law, and then he gives to us a ray of hope and restoration and redemption and gospel. And that is what we have at the end of Amos, gospel hope. I want to read what he says here. Look at verse 11. He says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess a remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. This section begins with the statement in that day, which is a way of saying in that day, after the judgment and the wrath and all of that have been poured out and it's over with. God, in his kindness and mercy, will raise up the booth of David. The Lord promises restoration of the Davidic dynasty, this time with Jesus Christ as the ruler on the throne. He promises to repair it, to raise it, and to rebuild it. He says, likewise, that they will possess the remnant of Edom, which means that they will inherit the possessions of their enemies. This will be available not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, because he makes a reference to all nations. Now, the question that is on everybody's mind, maybe on your mind, I don't know, 
is this question, when, when, when will this promise be fulfilled? And I want to give to you um, three basic or three main uh, different interpretations on how you can understand the timing of this. You could understand Amos 9, 11 to 15 as being literally and in the past. You could understand it literally and in the future, or you could understand it spiritually and in the church. Some say that this passage is fulfilled literally and it happened in the past, namely after Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity. Uh, I would suggest that this is not a valid understanding of this, uh, in part because Israel never achieved the prosperity and blessing that they had under Solomon's reign. So how could this be speaking of that time, which was far less than what Israel had experienced before? There is, uh, I'll skip the second one for now. The third option uh, suggested is that this could be spiritually fulfilled, or we might say uh, symbolically fulfilled, and that it it finds fulfillment in the church. So thus, when you have statements like the plowman overtaking the reaper, or you have hills flowing with sweet wine, and the gardens and their fruit, this refers to, as some would suggest, spiritual blessings among God's people in the church. Not literal, but general spiritual blessings in the church. And of course, this is an attractive option to many individuals because uh, there are many types in the Old Testament that do find fuller expression in the New Testament. Case in point is Hebrews chapter 10 describes how the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a shadow of the reality, namely Christ. But ultimately, I would suggest that that is an incorrect view of Amos 9 because Romans 11, 25 and following describes how the Lord is not finished with Israel as a nation just yet. For that reason, I would suggest to us that the second option is the way to understand this passage, and that is we would understand Amos 9 as literally and still in the future, a.k.a. the millennial kingdom, where Christ reigns here on this earth, and this will literally be fulfilled. Now, this promise of what I'm suggesting, and I believe is future blessing, is interesting because this promise includes one specific component that we might miss, we might glance over, but that is sufficient to make any Jewish reader squirm And that is specifically verse 12, where we read of all nations being welcome. This passage, Amos chapter 9, is quoted in the New Testament. Okay, does anybody know where this is quoted? In the book of Acts. 15, Jerusalem Council, okay? You guys know what the Jerusalem Council was. Guys met to talk about how do we deal with these Gentiles who want to be saved. Should we first, there there was a faction. Some people said, 
they first need to become Jews in order to receive God's grace. And then there were some that were saying, no, they receive God's grace and are saved just like the rest of us. And this passage was quoted at the Jerusalem Council. Let me give you a little bit of background on the debate. In verse 1 of chapter 15 in Acts, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, this is what the one group at the Jerusalem Council is saying. You have to go through these hoops in order to be saved. Okay, well, Peter at the Jerusalem Council speaks up and he says, giving the opposing viewpoint, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Um, I don't know if this is what he was thinking, but when I read this in English, uh, it seems like I would want to say it the other way around. We believe they will be saved just like we will. But he says, we believe, don't worry guys, we can be saved too. (laughs) There's still hope for us too. He kind of reverses it a little bit. We will be saved just like they will. And then James, of course, speaks up. And uh, in verse 14 of Acts 15, he says, uh, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, agree just as it is written. Do I know what the next statement that James gives to us is? He gives to us Amos 9. He gives to us the quotation the passage that we're talking about right now. And this is what he says in Acts 15. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that's fallen. Sound familiar? Okay. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And then he continues on and gives his commentary on this. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So what is James's argument using our passage in Amos 9? He uses Amos 9 to say that we are saved not by our works, but by grace alone. He says, wait a second, the prophets agree on this point. The prophets agree that you don't have to jump through these hoops to become a believer, that it's simply trust in the Lord. And so what is the point then of all this discussion of bringing this verse in at the Jerusalem Council? I'm going to give to you the point. Here's why James brings this point up in the Jerusalem Council. The gospel is for mankind not for Jews only. If you repent and believe in Christ, you will be saved. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what color your eyes are. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care how tall you are, how short you are. If you will repent of your sins and believe in the Lord, you will be saved. That's what the gospel teaches us. And that's, what this is, that's what's going on in Amos 9. Amos 9 is saying, do, do you remember the context? You remember, 
we trudged through those first couple of chapters in Amos, and he was giving, laying down indictment on nation after nation after nation, he's kind of come full circle. I mean, he, he, he's put everyone on a level playing field. Remember we said that Israel was probably there, you know, listening to these indictments against the nations. <laughs> yeah, they deserve God's wrath. Oh, they deserve God's wrath. Oh, yeah, even Judah. Yep, they deserve God's wrath. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. We're, we're, in a, we're a class above. What are you talking about? And so all the way from the way, the, 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 the dealing out of the judgments and the indictments, Israel is on par with the Gentiles. All the way from there to the way that gospel grace is received, they're on the same plane. Repent and believe in the Lord and you'll be saved. These blessings that the Lord gives out by pure gospel grace just continues to get better and better and better in this passage. I want you to look at... um, the second half of our passage today, beginning in verse 13, where we see these blessings continue. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Now, in order, in order to understand exactly what he's talking about here, you have to know a little bit about planting and harvesting. And planting season and harvesting season are two separate and distinct seasons, okay? It's now the time of the year where we plant our crops and then we wait. And now here's a time where we harvest our crops and now the harvest is over with and we wait until it's time to plant again. What he's saying is that during this time, the prosperity that the Lord will send is so completely overwhelming that these two distinct seasons will not be distinct anymore. They're going to overlap one another. There's going to be so much food to harvest, and there's going to be so much available that when it's time to plant new crops, you're still going to be harvesting last year's crops. It's just, there's too much for me to be, there's so much prosperity that you cannot keep up with it. The same goes for the grapes. He talks about the grapes. There's going to be so many grapes that you're, you're going to be picking, it's going to go on forever and ever and ever and ever. The mountains and the hills themselves are going to be productive. And there's going to be prosperity in the land where he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in the land, on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Fortunes will be restored, cities will be rebuilt, they will be inhabited, vineyards will be planted and enjoyed, gardens will be planted, God will plant the people of the, in the land and it will be permanent and never again will they be removed from the land. And this is part of the same book? Yes, it's part of the same book. This is our God. 
He's full of gospel grace. He did not have to do any of this. He did not have to promise any of these things. God is undoing all of the bad things. He's undoing Amos 5.11. You remember Amos 5.11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Well, now it's all in reverse. You will plant them and you will drink their wine. You have planted and you will enjoy the prosperity of all that you've planted. God restores them and he permits them to enjoy the fruit of the land. One of the lessons that we can learn from this passage is that God's people can never be robbed of their inheritance. Christians hinge everything on Christ. If we don't have Christ, we don't have anything. You can't create this for yourself. You're going to die and be put in a tomb somewhere and rot away. But the Lord promises restoration. He promises grace. One must appreciate the contrast between Amos 1 1 through Amos 9 10 and Amos 9 11 through 15. Again, let me remind to you what verse 10 says All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Immediately, verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And likewise, as we saw a few moments ago, we'll look again at this, Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, the same kind of stark transition, night and day difference happens here. You were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. Many people ask where the gospel can be found in the Old Testament. And here's just one location in the book of Amos. Wasn't deserved, and yet he gave grace. Amos confronts us with judgment after indictment after indictment after judgment. And then we get to the end of Amos after being crushed, trampled over. We're lying there in the dust. We say, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, and then we say, what? You mean there's hope after all of this? Yes, there is hope. The Lord is saving a remnant. And if you have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then this promise of salvation for a remnant is for you. You are free from the wrath of God and you will experience God's never-ending presence and joy and happiness. The hope that we have is in the gospel. And we found it in what we thought was going to be an unlikely source. One of those old dusty books in the Old Testament. One of those prophets. And there's gospel grace there too. 
just like Amos details to us the harsh realities of divine judgment, so too the human race faces judgment in a place called hell. Jesus himself says this, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus also says this, Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Jesus Christ also says this, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amos is not as different from the New Testament as some might imagine. And Jesus Christ himself is not as different from Amos as some might imagine. Both Jesus and Amos and both the New Testament and the Old Testament contain indictment, judgment, and wrath. And both Jesus and Amos and both the New Testament and the Old Testament contain grace, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration. We could go on with the parallels. Let's look at one more. Amos 5 and verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Where's the New Testament parallel? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved the same message the same one not different when you trust in Jesus Christ the gospel grace that we see in Amos and we see on every single page of scripture when you trust in that Christ this is the hope that you have No condemnation. You and I deserve every word of judgment from cover to cover in the prophecy of Amos. And you and I deserve worse than that. I just want to appeal with you perhaps here at the closing of the book of Amos that if you are here today and you don't know Christ, that you would repent and believe on Christ. One of the tragedies, one of, one of the many tragedies of a place called hell, and, and by the way, Hell will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the permanent abode. One of the tragedies of the lake of fire is going to be that it will be filled with many a good theologian. Um, It's going to be filled with people who know how to exegete Scripture. It's going to be filled with people who understand 
better than any of us understand the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's going to be filled even with people who have done kind things for a fellow man and given and sacrificed and all these kinds of things. I have not been called to um, reach the whole world. I'm a pastor of this small little church in Northeast Ohio that no one's ever heard of. It would be a great tragedy to me to learn that any one of you in this room would be in that place. Um... Don't mess with that. Don't sit here week after week. Amos is real. The judgment is real. Hell is real. Lake of fire is real. God's wrath is hot. Um, and so if you don't know Christ, then I would appeal with you to repent and believe in him. Because even Amos gives to us this great hope of the gospel that's available freely to all. I'll, I've got all day. I'm not doing anything this afternoon. Happy to talk with anyone here. And I know there are others as well. Um, but just don't mess with this aspect of your soul. Uh, because it's serious. And God's judgment is real, but his grace is also real. So repent and believe on Christ. Thank you, God, for today and this time. Help us to go from here encouraged to know that you have made a path, a way of salvation where we can find hope and freedom and escape from divine wrath. If there be any that don't know Christ, I pray that they may repent and believe in the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen.